Forgotten Hollywood with Chris Wineland is a production of Revive Studios. Did you know that without the influence of Hollywood, the Ku Klux Klan would not exist in the 21st century at all? Today, we're going to talk about the most shocking story of a forgotten history that I've ever heard. In fact, it's so surprising that TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram banned my post about this. We're going to talk all about the forgotten history of movies and television that shaped and pushed hot-button topics that we still talk about to this day. I'm Chris Wineland, and this is the podcast that combines Hollywood stories you might know with Christian stories you don't know. This is Forgotten Hollywood. It's time for a pop quiz. What was the first movie to ever be shown at the White House with the president in attendance? Is it The Wizard of Oz? Birth of a Nation? Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, or Avengers Endgame. Again, what was the first movie ever to be shown at the White House with the president in attendance? Is it The Wizard of Oz, Birth of a Nation, Charlie Chaplin's The Great Dictator, or Avengers Endgame? And we're going to answer that later on in the episode, but let me just tell you first where I heard this entire story that I'm going to dive into. And uh, we're going to have to go back to the time when I wanted to be a filmmaker. Yes, I've mentioned this before. I really, really wanted to be a filmmaker. And to be honest, if you wanted to picture what kind of person I was at the time, it's very much like I was Dawson's Creek. Um, <laughs> it's almost embarrassing, actually, because I really loved that show and I didn't realize how much I was becoming him. And um, But just the idea of you know wanting to be on set anywhere and wanting to learn about filmmaking and getting into the history of filmmaking was my passion at the time. And so my dad, who has always been an incredible support of, of anything I ever wanted to do, he took me to a Civil War in Cinema convention. And it happened to be in Virginia at Liberty University. And so we went and it was a really, really cool um, convention. And it was just so unique. They were talking about different types of movies uh, that were about Civil War. And one of the things I loved that I'm not talking about in this episode, but I thought was really interesting, was uh, a guy had led a whole class about how... Um, movies about civil war that were made in the 60s really did the whole greaser situation so you would see like he showed us trailers about civil war movies and they're like slicking their hair back and they're looking like greasers and he's like obviously that never happened that wasn't the fashion they barely even had um the uniforms you know in civil war at that time and yet here were these movies putting their own kind of culture into it well then i went to another class that was uh, really about the influence on Civil War movies in our nation today. And the person teaching the class spent a lot of time pointing out um, you know, other types of uh, things that really affected uh, the nation, but this one uh, was the most um, eye-opening thing. And he talked about a movie called The Birth of a Nation. And this, this is where my jaw dropped. Before we talk about the movie, let me give you an accurate understanding of the KKK organization before the movie was released in 1915. They no longer pretty much existed by the time that 
this movie came out in 1915. Okay, so in 1865, um, the KKK was founded by Confederate veterans and was only regional in the South, thanks to the government suppressing the group. They were virtually destroyed by the turn of the 1900s. Virtually destroyed. It's important to know that because it was not until a movie by the name of Birth of a Nation was debuted in 1915 that we saw this uh, group come back to life. And so this movie was a three-hour movie. Yes, that's a long movie. You heard me right. Three-hour movie that portrayed these white-cloaked people as heroes against, and this is their quote, Villains Who Preyed on White Women. This was uh, a movie that is widely considered to be the most racist movie in history, and it is. It was hard for me to watch. I tried to watch a little bit of it um, for the sake of uh, historicity. I remember a couple years ago, I sat down and I was like, maybe I'll watch it. And uh, it was, it was, it's extremely, extremely offensive and racist. Um, So yeah, it's on YouTube for free, but you know, there it is. But uh, however, it is ironically also listed by the American Film Institute in the top 100 film list. And this is why it's usually talked about in film classes. Um, it's considered one of the most important movies ever made because not because of uh, its content or because of what uh, the film discussed, but it was actually because of its con- camera shots and its angles for its time. It was very ahead of itself um, when when it had done this. And, and I, I think it is interesting to know that it was D.W. Griffith who directed it, and it was also his own independent studio. This was a time when, although there were a couple other studios that were becoming major studios, it wasn't as monopolized in the movie studio world as you see today. So he was able to get backers and and grow having his own studio. So um, this is the movie that was made. And when I tell you it's racist, it's an understatement. Um, the, the movie explained through characters and plots that having relations with, uh, you know, um, uh, as you could say, inner, inner relations, um, racial relations was so inconceivable that death was preferred. Um, that's, you know, what it discusses in the movie. In addition, most of the actors were um, white people in blackface and the movie had a, a clear agenda, a very, very clear agenda to bring back the full idea of segregation. So as we go into this episode, I think it is important to know um, that I am not in favor of this movie. I do not uh, like this movie, um, but what it did to our nation and its history is very, very important. And I think it is very important to go through history. And also as Christians, anytime there's hot button topics, I think it's very inter- um, important for us to know where they came from so that we can answer it correctly. Um, and so uh, going to this movie, as I said, um, they made the Ku Klux Klan the heroes in the movie. And this came out when the country was still divided after uh, the Civil War and the Southern Democrats were still pushing for the segregation. So the first public showing of the film, uh, and it was at that time called The Klansman. They didn't change the name until shortly after. Um, They called it The Klansman from January until about March. Then they had changed it um, to the movie that we know today, which is A Birth of a Nation. So it debuted in January 1st and 2nd in 1915 at the Loring Opera House in Riverside, California. The second night, uh, it was completely sold out and people were turned away. It was shown on February 8th of 1915 to an audience of 3,000 at uh, Clunes Auditorium in downtown Los Angeles. 
And the, the film backers, the film's backers understood that the film needed a massive publicity campaign, which we're going to talk about in just a few seconds because that is completely vital to understand what had happened with this movie. Um, so they really were a part of, of the publicity of it. And they knew that if they did something called a road show theatrical release, which is the practice of opening a film in a limited number of theaters in major cities for a specific time before the wide release, they knew that that would get more people to come see it. And so that's what they would do. They traveled. They, that's why they call it the roadshow. They travel. They open it up at these uh, limited seating theaters. And uh, they say, you know, watch it. You only have two days in this town to watch it. And so it made people flock to it. Well, this allowed Griffith to charge premium prices for tickets, sell souvenirs, and build excitement around the film before it was given a wide release. For several months, Griffith's team traveled to various cities to show the film for one or two nights before moving on, and the strategy was immensely successful. Birth of a Nation was the first movie shown in the White House, um, and that is the answer to Pop Quiz, by the way. If you guessed Avengers Endgame, good for you. Um, I uh, just put that in there because I thought it was hilarious, but you know, it could have been. Who knows? It's always confusing as to what happens in the White House and what presidents want to watch what. So I do not blame you if that's what you said, because honestly, I think I would have guessed that without this information. But it was actually Birth of a Nation that was the very first movie shown in the White House, and it was attended by President Woodrow Wilson, members of his family, and members of his cabinet. And they sat down to watch the movie. And also, uh, D.W. Griffith and his partner Dixon were also present. Dixon, his partner, said after the movie, he said that it was a triumph and that the president loved it. Now, this is an interesting um, story because it was actually widely disputed by Wilson's people afterwards because there was a, a couple of near protests. There were a lot of protests, but there was a, almost a couple of riots because he had watched the movie. And so um, people had said that he watched it and he absolutely loved it. But then after these near riots, he had come out and said, well, actually, no, I, I didn't say that. I don't like this movie. I want nothing to do with it. Um, and, you know, so there was this kind of back and forth situation, but it became a really dominant part of the advertising and marketing for this movie. Uh, they said, well, the president watched the movie like this movie was aired for the president. It was the first movie ever to be aired um, at the White House. And, um, you know, it wasn't just him, but it was members of his cabinet. Well, that created a lot of um, arguing from uh, from every side, actually. And there was a big dispute um, over, uh, you know, how could this movie exist? And, and so they really pushed forward with it. D.W. Griffith, regardless of what uh, people were saying and, and the controversy that it created, um, he even got approval um, by uh, the censorship uh, group for movies, which I had talked about in a previous episode. And so he had got uh, gotten it endorsed by everything he needed to get it endorsed by. And there it was um, kind of uh, becoming uh, a huge hit. And, and not kind of, actually. The box office gross of The Birth of a Nation uh, is not truly known because there was a bit of an exaggeration going on from these guys, um, which, you know, isn't a surprise. They were saying how big it was and they kept, you know, changing the numbers. But uh, a lot of people have done research and they figured out that the film generated somewhere in between 50 to $100 million in box office receipts, which is very big. Accounting for inflation, that puts the movie at over 1 
billion dollars. And what was important to know about this movie is that it was all about who the hero was and who the villain was. It changed um, or it, it really told the story of who the heroes and who the villains were. And the heroes by far in this movie was the Ku Klux Klan. And so so how does this movie bring them back to life? Well, it, not only in the movie were they heroes, but it was also a part of the promotions. In order to promote the movie, the film had people dress up as these members with the uh you know the, the the white blanket on their faces get on horses and they would welcome people into the theater well it did not take long before these costume characters became reality um before long people were creating chapters of the kkk all across the country now it went from dying before the 1900s to now becoming at that time it became very very lively of a group and, and it grew huge and to this day we still talk about it and it's really because of one movie, a black and white movie, that got its ideas across to a massive group of people. Uh, that, that's a very, very unique story to hear. And it is quite a hidden, uh, forgotten Hollywood type story because uh, we tend to just take what's given to us. We tend to um, just see, okay, this is where society is. This is, um, you know, where society is complaining, or this is where we're seeing riots. And a little, we little tend to focus on where it came from, or who was really pushing out the ideas before uh, a mob of people got it. And we've talked about this before. But um, mob mentality is extremely dangerous, whether it's um, whatever the subject is, I mean, it has a tendency to be extremely dangerous. And so even when there's an idea that comes out and you start to hear people saying it because they saw it and they're like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It can easily turn into a large um, group of people and who knows uh, where it can go. And so that's where the, the movie started. And it is the entire reason why that group is still around. Now, D.W. Griffith, who, uh, as I've been talking about, was the director of Birth of a Nation, he went on to make a movie called Intolerance the following year. And this is an interesting point because it was about Jesus, but it wasn't fully about Jesus. That was what he used. Um, it turns out this is a three and a half hour epic. Yes, three and a half hours. This guy made very long movies for his time and well, for any time, really. And he made this three and a half hour movie uh, called Intolerance. And a big part of it was it's a response to the criticism of Birth of a Nation. Griffith made clear within numerous interviews that the film's title and main themes were chosen in response to those who he felt had been intolerant to his movie, The Birth of a Nation. Now, the movie Intolerance intercuts four parallel stories, each separated by several centuries. First is a contemporary melodrama of crime and redemption. Second, a Judean story, Christ, mission, and death. Third, a French story, the events surrounding St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of 1572. And fourth, a Babylonian story, the fall of the Babylonian Empire to Persia in 539 BC. And um, it did not get nearly uh, as many people to go see it. But it's interesting to me that he chose to bring 
um, Christ into the story to possibly bring more people to go see it. Um, and so uh, these were the movies that were made. Now, uh, it wasn't completely silent on the other side. As we had said, there were many, many people that um, had, um, you know, uh, did protests and they uh, had sent letters and they were trying to, they had even sent letters to theaters to try to get the theaters to shut down uh, Griffith's movies. And also, there were some movies that were made that would kind of um, do its job of contradicting uh, Griffith's ideology. There was a good number of films with an all-black cast about 15 years later that highlighted their view of Jesus and Christianity. And one such movie is actually very enjoyable. I was watching it. It's called The Green Pastures. It's a 1936 American film depicting stories from the Bible as visualized by an all-black cast and characters. I don't believe I caught your name. Noah. Just Brother Noah. Honey, this gentleman's a preacher, too. He's just passing through the country. Good morning, sister. Good morning. You just catch me getting dinner ready. You going to stay with us? Well, it's quite a long movie, and uh, as a lot of movies back at that time in our subject uh, were quite long. The movie went on to make $3.3 million in the box office, which according to inflation would be $66 million, give or take, today. And um, it was, again, an all-black cast in 1936. Um, while this was not uh, you know, super, super common, it was also not the only one. It was probably perhaps the most successful, but there were many other movies like that in this style. One uh, is called The Blood of Jesus, 1941, and another is A Brother Martin, Servant of Jesus, 1942. It's also worth knowing that Green Pastures aired on television at one time as well. And so there was, um, you know, these movies had started to um, gain popularity and um, kind of make their mark a little bit in the movie and television industry. The issue of equality in television kind of continued as we move into the 1960s. And we're going to talk about one of the most influential comedians to ever live in this uh, time, which was Dick Gregory, who is an absolute genius, by the way. Not only was Dick Gregory one of the most sought-after Chicago comedians in the 1960s, performing regularly at uh, clubs in uh, Chicago, but Dick Gregory was offered a spot on the Jack Parr show. Now, the Jack Parr show was the Tonight Show before Johnny Carson. So, um, just for a quick history, um, the Tonight Show with Jack Parr, uh, basically, it was the Jack Parr show, the Tonight Show with Jack Parr. After he left, then Johnny Carson took over. And uh, then after Johnny Carson, uh, Jay Leno took over. After Jay Leno, it went to Conan O'Brien for two seconds, then back to Jay Leno, and then... uh, um, you know, it's Jimmy Fallon. I'm saying all of this just because uh, I have people from different generations that listen to the show, and I don't know which host you're um, used to knowing, but Jack Parr was a huge hit. In fact, he has an autobiography that I am staring at right now called I Kid You Not. It's one of my favorite books. It was handed to me by a friend of mine, um, an, an older friend at a Bible study um, at my church, and I devoured the book. It's really good. There might be a couple copies online if you want to read it but he and this is just a quick side note about jack parr jack parr was um very well known for his time in the tonight show world um he became extremely popular johnny carson of course beat him in the ratings but but people had televisions at that time not everybody had a television when jack parr was um a host but the people that dude that did have televisions were watching 
him while he was um, on the show. And uh, one of the things to know is that even in his biography, I kid you not, Jack Parr mentions uh, in a interestingly kind of humorous way that he had a friendship with Billy Graham. He had had Billy Graham on the show a little bit and um, and that he really uh, admired Billy Graham. And so Billy had said in the book, hey, you should really have me or you should join me, um, you know, and, and, and preach. And he said, yeah, I think I would lose uh, you know, I, I think I would lose sponsors for that. And he says that in the book. And so, um, you know, it's just a, an interesting point that Jack Parr definitely had somebody that was pouring into him spiritually, but he had also, um, had, um, a great relationship with a lot of people in his time on the show. And he ends up growing a fantastic relationship with, uh, Dick Gregory. Now, this is a really interesting time because Dick Gregory did something that was very rare. Um, and, and he was kind of the first one for this time. So Jack Parr wanted, um, you know, many different performers, but Dick Gregory, who really wanted to be on his show. In fact, he talks about it in an interview that, uh, that Dick Gregory wanted nothing more than to be on a Jack Parr's show. And he wanted to do comedy. And so he would wake up and he would, you know, go through his set and he would look at himself in the mirror and say, you're going to end up on Jack Parr's show. And then one day he was hanging out with a friend of his and this friend said, man, you don't ever want to go on Jack Parr, man. I hate Jack Parr. And, uh, Dick Gregory said, well, why, why? And he said, well, because they, they don't have black people on the show. And they only have them perform, and then they don't have them sit on the couch. So if they do have them on the show, they don't let them sit on the couch. And that was a really important part of the show. Like if you sit on the couch, um, it meant you know you're part of this family, you're part of this, um, you know this this show. And so he really um, took that to heart, and he ended up growing an issue with uh, with the show. And so one day he gets a phone call from um, one of the producers of the Jack Parr show. And um, the producer said, hey, uh, Dick Gregory, we love your stuff. We would love to have you on. And he said, nope. And he hung up. And then he got a call again. And according to him, he says it was actually very heartbreaking because that was his dream. And so to, to hang up on the people that were offering him this, um, he thought was one of the hardest decisions, but he did not feel right um, to take it. And so they called him again and they said, hey, you probably think this is a prank, um, but it's not a prank. He wants you. And Dick Gregory's like, I know this isn't a prank. I'm sure it's not, um, but I definitely do not want to be on the show. And then and finally, Jack Parr calls um, Dick Gregory personally. And he says, hey, this is Jack Parr. I want you on the show. Why do you not want to be on the show? Dick Gregory explains the reason to him. And then Jack responds with, well, come on in and you can sit on the couch. And so he said, okay. And Dick Gregory came on the show that night. And this was the response. Now, thousands of letters came in saying, I didn't know. Negro children and white children were the same. It was the first time white America got to hear a black person, not as a performer, but as a human being. They told me that so many people called in to NBC in New York that night that their trunks blew out. Another huge moment for the civil rights movement was pushed due to television broadcasting as well, although not scripted. The Selma March is what I'm talking about. The Selma to Montgomery marches were a series of marches spanning from March 7th to March 25th of 1965. The marches were organized by nonviolent activists to demonstrate the desire of African-American citizens to exercise their constitutional right to vote. The first day of the march, however, was met with very heinous opposition. On Sunday, March 7th, 1965, 
an estimated 600 activists were met by a wall of state troopers and county policemen determined to put a halt to this march. There, um, there was then a televised viewing of these police officers shoving, beating, and stampeding over the protesters on national television. It was shown in local Alabama news stations before having the film flown out to New York several hours later. When the film arrived at ABC's headquarters, they canceled their showing of the movie Judgment at Nuremberg and broadcasted this nationally. At 9.30 p.m., 50 million Americans who were waiting to watch the movie about Nazi war crimes were suddenly shifted to watching the brutality of African Americans. These, um, everyone, all of these, these Americans could not look away and something had to be done. And this day um, went down in infamy as Bloody Sunday. Following this, on March 9th, a labor leader named Walter Ruther who founded the UAW, sent a telegram to President Johnson saying, Americans of all religious faiths and of all political persuasions and from every section of our nation are deeply shocked and outraged at the tragic events in Selma, Alabama. And they look to the federal government as the only possible source to protect and guarantee the exercise of constitutional rights, which is being denied and destroyed by the Dallas county law enforcement uh, agents and the Alabama state troops under the direction of Governor George Wallace. Under these circumstances, Mr. President, I join in urging you to take immediate and appropriate steps, including the use of federal marshals and troops if necessary, so that the full exercise of constitutional rights, including free assembly and free speech, be fully protected. After the march, President Johnson issued an immediate statement deploring the brutality with which a number of citizens of Alabama were treated. He also promised to send a, a voting rights bill to Congress that week, although it took him until March 15th. But it is very worth noting that had it not have been televised and then put out nationally for 20 million people to see it, who knows um, how many more marches they would have had to, to go, or sorry, 50 million Americans, who knows how many um, more marches they would have had to do to get the attention of the president who at that time was not um, listening to any of the conversations that he was having with Martin Luther King Jr. or any other types of leaders. It wasn't until Americans saw it on television and something had to be done. And so um, using uh, the stories uh, that we've been talking about in this episode, there are movies that will take people, that can literally take people to, to believe in, 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 in things that would hurt others and to believe in things that would help others. And that is the power of uh, Hollywood and of television which I talk about in pretty much every episode. But uh, when we're talking in this episode mainly about hot-button topics, I, I think it's important to know some other types of, of situations. So first, of course, is that during the 80s and 90s, there was a big boom of uh, African-American-led TV shows such as The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, The Jeffersons, Family Matters, Martin, and the biggest of all of them is The Cosby Show. Now, no matter what your views or beliefs are about Bill Cosby, uh, you cannot deny that he had one of the largest TV shows in the world during the run of his show, The Cosby Show. Now, The Cosby Show ran from 1984 to 1992 and was a phenomenal hit. It received the People's Choice for Comedy 
of the year seven out of eight seasons. It had three Golden Globes, six of the 29 Emmy Awards it was nominated for, and it was nominated for over 40 other awards as well. The show was number one on the Nielsen ratings for five straight seasons, as well as top five for seven consecutive seasons. At the height of its glory, it reached approximately 40 million viewers an episode and brought in over $2.5 billion of revenue. It is highly regarded as reviving the sitcom genre and is critical in uh, many of television shows that we have seen today. It was also groundbreaking, though, in the way that it brought together black and white viewership alike. Um, it became known as a, as a show that had really brought about unity and peace because of, of um, the family. And so, uh, again, you know, this is an example of what a TV show or a movie can do. And, um, you know, j just pointing out sitcom families, they have been extremely influential in the way that we raise our own families by watching sitcom families. I, I think one example is the show Roseanne. She was this um, working mom and people everywhere related to her because there were working moms. There were, there, there were, you know, these, these uh, moms at home that were working really hard for their kids and cleaning and taking care of everybody. And when the show came on Roseanne, they said, wow, this is relatable. And then it also helped to show other people, hey, maybe this is what my wife's going through. You know, a lot of husbands had no idea. And so they felt, okay, well, you know, maybe this is more relatable than I thought it was. There's a lot of shows like that. You can also go into the early 2000s of Disney Channel shows where they make dads look dumb. And uh, you've heard a lot of people talk about that, I'm sure, um, that that has been an issue where people say, well, kids, you know, step all over their parents. And that's kind of the early 2000s. And in the 1990s, you have some dads that were leading the way and um you know that's your tim allen and um and your um you know the, the matthews family uh with the way that they portrayed family so families were um really important and instrumental in the way that uh, americans would see their own family and see other families or the way that they would perceive another family movies and films have been used to narrate and navigate a, a myriad of other political stances and issues other than racism, as well as, um, you know, a, another very hot topic issue that has been a hot button topic is abortion. And abortion was a very taboo topic um, for movies and films uh, for a very long time. And it was uh, not until November of 1972 when a TV show started to really bring it into uh, conversation. Now, this was a, it was the first primetime television shows uh, that that uh, where this was a big story. It was where the main character had contemplated um, having a, an abortion, and uh, ultimately in the episode, uh, the character goes through with it. And um, there were a few movies and shows before Maud that uh, had touched on this topic, um, but it wasn't really until the show that got viewers. Um, there was only, you know, about four movies and maybe one television that, that talked about it. But Maud was very influential because it happened just the year before Roe v. Wade um, and their Supreme Court trial. So the show started to get people talking about it. And then it, it really kind of got people looking at the support, um, the Supreme Court trial. Now, um, the original storyline was actually... Uh, kind of interesting. It was in order to, to win a contest, 
um, for through a company and you could win ten thousand uh, dollars and it was supposed to just be like this comedy and this this funny thing but the episode ended up being um, you know focused on this hot uh, button issue and it was really really high in views a lot of people talked it uh, or watched it but it also resulted in over 700 angry letters protesting the subject matter and over 400 angry phone calls into CBS and then protests at every major CBS broadcasting station and so um, it caused quite a bit of controversy there was also 39 channels that um, preempted these episodes and said you know we're not going to talk about this um, while the show continued to stay in the top 10 ratings uh, for the following four seasons, the TV show made it more popular to talk about it. And, um, you know, we really find, especially through the vehicle of comedy, is when people can start to talk about, take an issue and start to, to talk about it and get other people to talk about it more and more. Um, and so, you know, it's it, it's really interesting uh, to see that. And, you know, these hot button issues really get people... Um, talking and uh you know it wasn't until that show that got the the door really open in large part for people to openly discuss um abortion and so um you know it's it's just worth noting that a hot button topic issue like that was pushed forward Uh, another topic that pop culture entertainment pushed was that of the sexual revolution of the 16 of the 60s and 80s now, I've mentioned this in previous episodes, and I've decided I don't think I'm going to do a full episode. Maybe I will in season two, but not in this first season, only because I've mentioned it enough that I think you get the idea. Um, it really came in in America and also kind of started to catch on in developed countries all about um, different types of uh, sexual ideas, such as polygamy, nudism, pornography, just all of this uh, completely anti-biblical way of living um, uh, someone's sexual life, right? And so uh, I, I don't support any of these, um, but it's worth noting that um, that this is what happened. And uh, it really led to the widespread availability of pornography. So it went from people talking about it to you know men um, purchasing the magazines, and now we know that it's online quite a bit. In fact, um, a Chicago native became very famous. His name was Hugh Hefner, and he became huge, uh, kind of uh, pivotal in in this war that he called it, uh, which was the sexual revolution. And um, he he founded Playboy in 1953. Um, and this magazine was mainly for men, of course, um, with noon pictures. The magazine was released monthly from 1953 to 2016, and it skyrocketed the fame of Hugh Hefner, uh, who also became very influential in films and TV shows. He made um, you know, two TV shows of his own, and he appeared in over 30 other films as well. So his ideology was getting out there at a rapid speed because he was um, in connection with television and movies on a regular basis. Movies have gone so far as to even influence people's views on religion and God. Um, you know, I've talked about previous examples in and other episodes about the passion of the Christ where people came to Christ. So there are good examples of uh, people seeing a change by watching a movie. There's many, many stories. You know, as Christians, we have to approach 
um, these situations and these hot button topics because they're approached to us. And in fact, I, I'm sure most of us who are are believers um, that we, because I've had this before, where over the years I've been approached by people with the questions of, you know, saying, hey, what is your opinion on this issue? Whatever the issue is, what is your opinion on this hot topic issue? And it's important, I think, for us to know that these subjects didn't just come out of thin air. Um, I was friends with um, this youth pastor who recently um, was, you know, a, a youth student had come up and had asked, hey, um, you know, what, what do you think of Jojo Siwa, which is um, a, a well-known YouTuber now? And the youth pastor said, I don't know. So I, I do, I've never heard of this person. I don't think it's important at all. And, uh, and you know, they, these students were really looking up to this person for everything that she was saying, and, and they wanted to follow and be this person, basically. And so it's important for us to know when a subject comes out, um, I think it's important to track and figure out why somebody is talking about it. Because most likely, this subject or this hot button issue came from that person's television. And now it's up to you to answer it. For more information on Forgotten Hollywood, visit my website at chriswineland.com. You can also find all of my source material from this episode and other past episodes on my page as well. And be sure to follow me on Instagram at chriswinelandcomedy. We'll be back next week with another surprising episode of Forgotten Hollywood. Thank you.